The presenting sponsor for On Education is Schoology. Schoology's passion lies in helping instructors and students have the best education experience possible. Schoology is a collaborative, student-focused, and faculty-centered learning management system. Students love Schoology because it gives them 24-7 access to course materials, real-time feedback from their instructors, and easy-to-use collaborative tools. Teachers love the streamlined workflow, integrated apps such as Google and Microsoft tools, and the ability to view evidence of student learning for making instructional decisions. To learn more about what is possible with Schoology, simply visit Schoology.com. I mean, seriously, Texas, Texas, 1%. What the hell is going on in Texas? Welcome to On Education. I'm Mike Washburn. And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today. We will discuss schools that are helping their teachers pay down student loans. Why charter school graduation rates are so low. Should we be giving zeros to students? And our guest this week is an amazing educational technologist and author, Lisa Johnson. I'm playing too much farm together. I know. Me too. So I'm, I'm up to 182 hours on Steam. It is the sixth most played game in my Steam history. Uh, I mean, to be What's fair, one? Civilization, Civilization Five is number one, and Civilization Six is number two, I think. Okay. So to be fair, there's them, and then there's kind of everything else. Yeah. Um, like my Civilization Five played time is about sixteen hundred hours. <laughs> you know, that's lifetimes, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Lifetimes of Civilization. Now, is that a game kind of like, you know, I have 172 hours played. Now, this is a a short time that we've been playing this game. Um, (laughs) I have 172 hours now. Is it kind of like farm together where we we leave our farms up and then kind of walk away on civilization? Okay. So it's so there are some people know that we're not like actively on it the entire you just you leave it on. uh, And then it it, the farm is is doing its thing. And uh, you know, yeah, you know, right. here on my farm, or yeah, I guess yours too. Now, a, a lot of it is there's we have actually have people that we've hired. We have farm hands, um, because the farm is they're so gigantic. So when we come back to the farm, the farm hands have done a lot of work for us, and now it's time for us to organize our stuff and sell things. Um, yeah, it's, I was. <laughs> I was telling you the other day on Discord when we were playing that Steve Isaacs likes playing your farm way more than he likes playing my farm. See, if, so if he'll, get a, he'll get a yeah. chuckle out of that. <laughs> if people saw the comparison between our two farms, they they might actually know a little bit about ours and what, what you know, because yours is like super organized. It's yes. very laid out, strategic, and uh, it's uh, actually really, it's not only organized, but it's like if you went into somebody's house and everything is precisely in the right place, you know, uh, the way that they've decorated everything else might be. That's, that's Mike's farm. And mine is just like a bomb went off and things just kind of, (laughs) kind of just ended up in certain places. I have no corrals around my animals. They're just kind of hanging around, rocking and Um, there's random things in random places. Um, yes. And, and my only mission I get, I don't even know at this point, I have 45 million in coins and I have a level 68 farm. I just told you that I think when I get to level 100, I might be done. But 
we'll see when that happens because no. that, that's quickly approaching. Level 100 yes. is not that far for both of us. No, no. Yeah, so <laughs> Steve doesn't like my my structured uh, militarism of of the where where I want things. He put pi- he put pigs in the wrong place the other day and oh. I almost lost my friggin' mind. <laughs> uh, I was like, "Steve, there's so a place for funny. the damn pigs. Put the, put the pigs in the place." Put the pigs think, in the pen. I think, he, I think he got mad at I think he got mad at me. I, I love you, Steve. I'm sorry. Don't 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 leave me. Steve, if you come into my farm, you can just do whatever you want. See? <laughs> put pigs wherever you want. <laughs> Cuz that's what I do. <laughs> oh god. That's hilarious. Oh, man. So, what yeah. else we got here? Well, I was uh, wondering, what are you watching right now on Netflix or Hulu or whatever it might be? Because I have an awesome recommendation. Like, well, first of all, I made a Facebook post and we just finished uh, a show together, my wife and I. And then I was like, okay, we need something new. Yeah, we yeah. got about 47,000 recommendations. Thank you, everybody. Uh, many of the shows we had already seen, you know, Breaking Bad and so on and so forth. So stuff that's, that is uh, amazing shows. So I have a show that you can watch with your spouse that's awesome you mike and our audience so the show is called killing eve and maybe i'm late on this train i think it's only like eight episodes but it is so fun we're three episodes in and it is amazing i love the characters and i love the it's like action based but it's still it's a a spy show but it also has some funny moments in it. And as I was telling Mike, my goodness, it's just so dang good. And and uh, I want to just keep watching it. The first season, I think, is only eight episodes. We're like two or three already in. But I guess season two is coming out April 7th. So pretty soon. So I'm okay. going to probably get to there then. That'll be awesome. And I was telling you that the main lead actress is so amazing. Her name is Sandra Oh. And I guess she's been in other shows. Um <gasps> Maybe she's in that show about family or what is that one? A show that everybody watches that I don't want to watch because I'll start crying. Really emotional kind of show. Oh, this, this is us? Yeah, this is us. I'm, I'm not sure if she's in that show. Maybe she's not, not. watching that. Okay, I'm not watching no, that. But I don't I, like to cry. Wasn't she in? I think she was in Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> Grey's See, I don't Anatomy? know. I don't know anything about TV. That, so, that's probably you know. what she's in. Grey's Anatomy. There you go. Maybe. But anyway, this is only specifically on Hulu, though I think you can purchase the episodes on anything else. But highly recommend it. If you have Hulu, yeah, watch the show. There you go. Yes. I watch um, Star Trek Discovery. Yes. That- which is a friggin' awesome show. Yeah, you were I telling me Star you Trek loved it. Discovery. Yes. Yeah, the only thing the problem with it is that in the United States you have to get CBS All Access in order yeah. to even watch it, which is I that's just to me I'm just annoying. Yeah, it's super annoying. I, otherwise, I would watch it. I mean, I would be it's, right on it. It's pretty available here, so it's on a, a couple different networks here. Uh, so it's pretty great. Like, I listen. I'm a Trekkie, so you can't talk to me about Star Trek and be like, rah, 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 rah. I don't want to hear it. Star Trek Discovery is friggin' awesome. Yeah, like, Star it is Trek. a great Star Trek show. Or would you rank number one? Because then I can, I know what kind of person you are then. Yeah, number what? one for me is Next Generation. Of course. What's number two, though? So this is the hard one, right? So this has changed in the last probably 10 years or so. Okay. My My number two now for sure is Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine. Okay. I would Deep put that number three or four. So, but, but I am like, Discovery's great. It's very good. So it's and up there. 
I could Top put it at three? I could put it at three. I could put it at three. Wow. Yeah, then for I sure. have to watch it. And then it's I awesome. Have, yeah, I have it's, to let you know what I think then too. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of space, actually, space do transition. you follow? Yeah, segue. Do you follow? Um, you don't follow space stuff as much as I do, right? You always tell me about these things, but cool. Yes, go ahead and so, describe it. Big deal, though. Like big, big, big deal. Um, the crew. So SpaceX and Boeing are both making crew capsules for delivering astronauts to the ISS. We haven't um, North American um, astronauts go to Russia and get on Soyuz capsules to go to ISS. That's how it's been since. But ISS uh, for our audience, International Space Station. There you go. Just in okay. case. Yes. So since 2011, the last space shuttle launch was 2011. So for for quite some time now, the only way you've been able to get to space is uh, through Russia, which obviously the United States of America probably isn't a big fan of, uh, especially right now. Um, and it's never been ideal um, for a lot of reasons. So SpaceX and Boeing are both um, designing capsules and the uh, the capsule made by SpaceX is called Dragon. So there's an unmanned Dragon, which has been used for a couple of years now to deliver supplies. So the unmanned Dragon has, is good. It's been running for years. Um, but the Crew Dragon just launched its first test um, this weekend. So hmm. they launched it on Saturday morning. It docked with the ISS uh, this morning. Um, and what's really cool, like this is like, they science the hell out of this stuff, man. Like to have to, the idea, like, I don't know how much people get about space, but the idea that you have to launch at almost a specific exact time so that when the dragon gets to ISS, they literally like come together Yes, at the, at the exact a lot right of time. Mathematical equations oh and physics God. involved in this. So, but the way that um, they they attach capsules to the ISS in the past has been by using the the arm, the Canada arm, to grab it. So, someone at the space station operates the arm, it reaches out, and it grabs a hold of the capsule and drags it in, basically the rest of the way, and docks it. Okay. Um, the Crew Dragon is the first capsule that um, will dock automatically. It it doesn't need any intervention by people to dock it it just does it um with sensors and lasers and automation it just it's it's awesome like it's it's our the future is here man this is so cool so like you're gonna have very soon and just announced a couple of days ago um there's going to be a uh, joint venture between i think the united states and canada to build a lunar space station wow so there's going to be a space station orbiting um, uh, orbiting the moon. It's going to be built by Canada and the United States and uh, maybe probably a couple other people. I just know that Canada is heavily involved. Uh, and this is the type of thing that's good. This is what this is going to be used for. The idea that you could have things land on the moon all the time, dock them with this space station that's orbiting the moon, and then launch it out towards the ISS and then launch it back to earth or something like that there's going to be like the structure is being put in place it's i mean we're going to be alive when people are living on the moon and mars and that always just absolutely blows my mind uh, i could talk about space all day so i should i should stop <laughs> the space segment <laughs> right but it's so incredibly exciting it is um awesome. yes and and it, this is such a huge achievement 
Um, so it looks like SpaceX is going to launch people in the Crew Dragon sometime in the early summer, so June or July. So that's when the that's crazy. You, you'll hear me get geeked up about you, that. You will get yes. You, I'm ready. You're going to get jazzed up about that. Yes, my my body is ready. Let's do it. <laughs> so um, this is a cool. We've got a couple of cool articles that we came across. Uh, one of them being this idea that companies now, in order to entice graduates to work for them, are offering to help pay down people's loans. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the first thing that, I mean, I think people realize that the number out there for total student debt carried by Americans is over 1.5, check this number, trillion dollars. Just stupid. that number is very scary uh, for our economic system and just scary overall as each of us individuals goes into the work industry after you graduate from school and you're trying to get a job. So some some of these companies, and, and I, I was thinking, man, this would be an awesome way to recruit again into education is they help basically their workers to pay down their student loans. So let's say you had a $217 a month payment that the company actually would pick that up. Imagine that then it's just cash in your pocket that then you can go and spend out in the economy to help drive that, uh, to help pay for, you know, your car payment or whatever it actually might be that you're working on your, you know, your bills, your other bills. So I think it's a fantastic idea. The uh, They give an example as far as uh, some different uh, students who recently graduated, they work for different companies and they get help to be able to pay down their student loans. I think that this is going to become the norm. It's uh, There's just so much uh, debt out there that this is a, a great recruitment tool. So many of us out there that have inordinate amounts of student loan, we need jobs, but not only do we need a good paying job, we need help with that too. If you have that availability, availability man, what an awesome way to recruit uh, your workers. You got to think like the tech companies would be all over this, the Facebooks and the Googles and the Apples. Because, I mean, the competition to get those people on board is high and also probably the expense to get the education that qualifies you to work at Facebook or Google or Apple is expensive. So it's the perfect tool for those folks to use to say, listen, we'll uh, we'll help you wipe out your, your debt. $1.5 trillion. Think about the things you could do. When With you inject, if you, if you were <laughs> no, but like in the sense that these there's people, yes, uh, m- millions of people paying monthly payments, mm-hmm. um, to pay down student loans. Imagine what you and uh, the other thousands of people, including myself, I still have student loan debt. What we would do with that extra money, uh, if we had it instead of having to pay down these ridiculous debts, we would be injecting that money into the economy in various ways by buying other things doing it'd be disposable income. And that's, you know, what we need. We need people with disposable income and no one has it anymore. And, and that's, that's a problem. Like the, the, the economy is strong when people have disposable income to go on vacations, to go to Niagara falls and, you know, do stupid things. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> well, those aren't stupid, but yes, no, I know what you mean. Like that's, that's the things that drive economies and, and us being able to go ahead and, and put that so money back money. out at there, man, it, it would, it, something's going to have to happen. I mean, I don't know what it actually is. It, I know what it, it is. Will it actually break the economy? I hope not. I hope someone comes in and actually has a, a really strong plan, 
that uh, that gets implemented, you know, not kind of halfway implemented, which so many things happen like that, uh, but a full all out plan to attack this and then really uh, basically uh, find a way to be able to go ahead and resolve this gigantic issue that's ha- just hanging there. It's the elephant in the room uh, in so many of us, uh, so many of our households. There's there's an election coming up, folks, and and a couple of couple of good Democratic candidates have plans. So uh, take a look at those folks, because uh, for sure, there's definitely some that's a way to do it. I will try not to inject my opinion. My oh, my God, it's going to be so hard the next year and a half. Well, it's going to be all about the election. (laughs) I mean, that's it's so related to everything that we do in education uh, and in our own personal lives. Mike, there is no you can't ignore it. No, no. So, so we will be talking about it. Just not today. And and certainly this is this is an issue because it's coming up, I guess, again with DeVos and and uh, I guess she's trying to do some charter school stuff again. And an analysis just got released recently that says that the the graduation odds for for charter school high school students is is quite a bit lower. Yes, it's actually less than 50 percent. Jeez. That's disgusting. I mean, so basically they even put the analogy, you could flip a coin whether or not you're going to graduate from high school if you are part of a charter school. I also wanted to lay this one out for you, Mike. There's a speci- there's a map here with statistics. Now, some statistics, uh, the states aren't giving those out. But one of the states that is giving out the information as far as charter schools with low graduation rates, there's a map that you can hover over the state of Minnesota where I'm at. And the graduation rate for these charter schools, and this was in 2019, it's from the Research Center of Analysis, so it's not a tainted statistic. It is the actual amount is 35% in Minnesota. So I saw another number students, here just a second ago. Yeah, Massachusetts. you're sending your students. Yeah, go ahead. Massachusetts, 9%. 9%. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, Texas, Texas. One percent. What the hell is going on in Texas? <laughs> no, but I mean, these are specific charter schools and we don't know the number of those charter schools and what are they actually doing. But these statistics are staggering. Um, that's a, that's yeah, mind blowing. This me. is crazy. And so we it, there's a couple of things about this. And it's interesting as far as, uh, you know, to really understand what how diverse the uh, expectations of our students are within different charter schools, even within the different states, because each school, as it says in their name, writes their own charter as far as what is their objectives. But in the end, it looks like they're not even serving our students. It's a big push by Betsy DeVos to say, not just charter schools, but just basically the privatization of schools in general, um, and because they will be better serving for all of our students. And these statistics show that that's actually not the case. That's uh, it's far worse. Uh, and to have a 35% graduation rate in Minnesota mm-hmm. and, you know, 1% in Texas, as far as charter schools, the effectiveness of them, something's up with that. So Astounding. we definitely need to go ahead and take a second look and, and not be, ta- not be, uh, influenced by the by the jargon out there that says hey charter schools give students choice it, it it does but is there what 
is their choice really a bad choice, you know, as far as, you know, the statistics show. And in this case, it does. So we'll make sure we link it so you guys can check it out. You can do your own in-depth analysis. And then if you have any other more information about charter schools in general and why they are obviously not meeting the needs of our students, we're not graduating our kids, mm-hmm. uh, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. Hit us up. Uh, so we we started a conversation online, and we're going to continue when we come back about whether we should give students zeros or not. Stay tuned. Quests. One of Classcraft's most popular features with over 100,000 lessons created by teachers and 3 million learning objectives completed by students so far is now part of Classcraft's free offerings. In 2019, your students won't just be learning multiplication, chemistry, or any other content. They'll be saving the kingdom. Transform your lessons into adventures with Quest today. Visit classcraft.com for more information. All right, welcome back, everybody. So, pretty interesting news story got kind of filtered through our our, our feeds uh, this week, and it generated a pretty interesting discussion on Glenn's Facebook page. So we thought we would <laughs> we thought we would continue it here. It, it, the story is a, a Florida teacher um, has been fired for giving her students zeros for missing assignments. She was a teacher for quite some time, uh, taught eighth grade history in, in Florida and gave them uh, a number of weeks to finish a project. They didn't hand it in. She gave them zeros. It's it was contrary to the school policy. So the school policy was uh, a no zero policy. The lowest possible grade teachers can give the students at that school was 50 percent, even if they didn't turn anything in. Obviously, she disagreed with the rule and was fired for disobeying it. I mean, this is a complex story. There's a lot of so many layers. (laughs) There's a lot of issues. Obviously, you know, there's the idea that she went against a school policy, regardless of whether she whether it was right or wrong. There's there's that there's whether we should be giving zeros at all. Uh, And certainly there is the idea that the grading system of of offering a numerical grade to um to describe a student's learning is is kind of where we ended off so where where do we want to start first off i mean should this woman have been fired glenn should she have been fired well if you break school policy you can be fired so uh, all of us sign contracts so and unfortunately or fortunately i don't know it is the nature of the beast we sign these contracts uh, and by signing it, you are saying that you're going to abide by the policies of the district. Many policies of many districts don't make any sense yeah, and no, totally. actually are contrary and detrimental to education. I think some of them are. 100%. Uh, this one, in this case, I don't know if it's detrimental to education. It was more of a, I'm going to stand up for what I believe is right. That's what she's, that's what she's saying, that it's ridiculous that she would be forced to give a 50% on a, a project assignment, whatever it might be, uh, to students that didn't actually do it, you know. So should she have been fired? Well, according to her contract, yes. Is it a good enough reason to fire someone as far as not following that specific policy? I'm not, you know, I'm not sure of that. And would she have been willing to go ahead and change it? You know, that's the interesting part is like, would they have brought her into the office and said, hey, uh, we 
we understand where you stand at, but our school policy is this, so we need you to go ahead and change that grade. And then at that point that she say, no, I'm not going to do it, which then you're just based, you're, you're intentionally not following, you know, the contract. And then you're also going yeah. ahead and telling your, your superiors that no, you're not going to follow uh, what they're telling you to go ahead and do, right. which will get you fired. Now, yeah, be a happier person probably because she actually did that, you know, she stood up for her own, you know, uh, what her beliefs were. Probably. Yeah. And, you know, like some people said, you know, sort of the thing, go work at a different school district, et cetera, or go work in, uh, you know, a different state. Uh, I'm not sure. If, it doesn't sound like it's a state policy. It was a local uh, school district policy. Um, mm -hmm. And then the, then the fights actually began, you know, as far as whether or not we should give kids 50% or any amount of points for not turning something in. Right? So let's talk. That's let's talk starts. about that's where the controversy starts. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's talk about that because that's definitely the second part of this. Let's leave out leave out like the existential questions about grading itself for a second. Okay. okay. So let's just talk about let's say there is a grading system and or there is a report card. You have to fill it out. It has to have a number on it. Yes. This is the way it is. So let's just deal with it. As Let's it is. deal with this question as it is. Okay. So my person, the way that I did things, um, and, and this was a really great discussion because I was able to kind of articulate it a little bit better later on. Um, there were people that were, you know, that are strongly no zeros ever under any circumstance. And, and I think that that's not an appropriate response at all. Um, you know, I guess my position is, and, and I'll give you kind of the, the workflow that I would go through. If a student was two weeks late on an assignment, I mean, at that point, they will have been given number of verbal warnings uh, and reminders. And because we use Schoology, it's also literally right on the top of their login, you know, uh, on their home, their main page that something is overdue. Yep. So obviously assignment. both students and parents know it's late. Okay. Yep. So I would tend to, I would tend to put a zero in the grade book. Um, about, I, I usually give about two weeks. So I put a zero in the grade book at that point. They, they've also then been notified. They've gotten a zero and that has tended to have gotten most of the ones who were late off their butts to get whatever it is they got to hand in, hand it in. They go, oh, crap, I got a zero. I got to hand this in. They hand it in, I mark it, and we're good to go, right? I don't have a problem grading things that are late. Um, so then, then you begin a game of cat and mouse a little bit in the sense that, you know, I go through it. I would have gone through a number of other steps. I would have called home for sure. And spoken to parents. This is a big assignment. It's it's late. We need to get it in. Um, I, I there's a zero in their grade book, and I would say, listen, the zero is staying until you hand it in. That that does. If you don't hand in something, you don't get a mark. It's 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 really that simple. I can't give you credit for something you don't do, and I think it sends a really terrible message to give a student fifty percent um, when they don't have to do anything at all to do that when you can pass and not do anything 
I think that that's awful. Um, so, yeah. I, and I and I get that point, and that's actually probably where the majority of our teachers stand. I'm not sure. Yeah, I bet it's 50, I bet it's a controversial topic, no matter what. The opposite viewpoint, which is mine, is that the scale shouldn't <laughs> start at zero. It should actually start at 50, and there's a mathematical reason for that. And basically what they've done is they calculate a zero into anything, especially something as big as, let's say, a project. And let's just call it an assessment, a summative assessment of knowledge, which would be something significant where it would actually uh, cripple a student's grade. We all know, actually, anybody that marks zeros understands that there are times when you have marked a kid, uh, let's say they got three mark is what you're saying. You've got three or four zeros within a grading period. And they've probably got, let's just say they have a total of 15 total uh, things that you've actually assessed. So they're actually in the grade book. If those, if three of those are zeros and any of those are significant amounts of points, let's just call them as far as points. What it does is it basically distorts the grade significantly. And you have students that have, for example, grades like a, 38%, uh, a 42%. I've even had students that had like 11%. And the reason why they had an 11% is because I gave them zeros for assignments or uh, items that were assessed that actually I graded it and marked it, as you say. Um, And then I put zeros into the grade book and it distorted their grade significantly. Um, So where should that scale start, you know? And then my next question was basically the, the, the philosophical then point is we're assessing these students with using a percentage scale, zero through a hundred. And then we yeah. also probably use letter grades. Not all of us do, but many of us do letter grades that are associated with that. Many of our high schools use a 4.0 scale uh, that determines a grading grade point average, GPA, et cetera, whatever it might be. Um, the bigger question then are, uh, and I want to give a shout out to Jennifer Gonzalez of the cult of pedagogy, uh, podcast and her website where she basically says, what are we actually measuring? <laughs> like what, what do these things actually represent? And so I wanted to know, and it's hard. I mean, when you, uh, it's one of the the most controversial questions you can ask a teacher is, what's the difference between a ninety five percent student and an eighty five percent student, or a ninety five percent student and a student that gets a seventy two percent, et cetera, whatever it might be. Right. And and when you tell me that the difference, I want you to tell me how much more do they, you know, uh, is it has to do with knowledge or skills that they develop, you know, that they've proven, they demonstrated, whatever it might be. And can those percentage scales actually do that? Um, and and how effective is it, you know, to demonstrate those things? It, it's one of those old things that you talked about. Uh, tradition. It's a tradition that's ingrained so heavily into our educational system that when we talk about things like standards based grading or other other alternative ways to assess our students, it like. It gets crazy out there, not only with our teachers and students, but it gets crazy with our communities because we're all so used to that. It's it, it's easy for us to go like, hey, my student got an A. They're doing well in class. Right. Like they're doing the best that they could possibly do. Uh, they have a C. Well, you know, what would people say that's like, oh, that's 
they're an average student, you know, whatever it might be, you know, like, how do you describe these people? D, they are they're a little bit below, they're below average. They're, you know, but they're still passing the class. And then an F student is failing or whatever it might be. But it's, it, it doesn't really talk about how much do we actually know as far as within our class? How much did we learn? Did, what standards did we actually meet? that those percentages and those letters don't really represent any of those things. So it's really hard. It's a tough discussion to have, but it's one that we should definitely open it up because it's, even though it's one of those things I always tell people, when you talk about grading, it's like a Pandora's box. Yeah. And it's yeah. what me and you had discussed is like, there's so many different layers to it that you can go in so many different directions that usually people just get frustrated and give up and then go back to what they've always done. Right. Um, but it's something that we should definitely be talking about and if find good uh, best practices to be able to go ahead and implement because this this is an old system that, and we've basically said you know it doesn't really do what it's it's meant to do which is basically show us where does where's how much student does, how much knowledge sorry does a student actually have and I mean, this filters up, right, in the sense that the universities are looking for numbers for acceptance. Um, like, like so so a lot of uh, a common response to to the grade, the number scale issue is switching to some sort of a mastery scale, uh, you know, a, an acquired, you know, um, developing uh, and put that on a report card. Yes. So so we're we're you know it's 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 a sentence or a word that that you know suggests you know what what knowledge where they are in the process of acquiring a certain amount of knowledge but i mean a university is not going to accept that you know for admissions but some are so, though some are are moving, they yes yeah, especially like you look into it i should have i should have pulled this up but we're talking about like let's talk let's just go to the extreme ends like what are the the top universities in the United States Stanford Harvard those types of universities they're okay. moving away from GPAs because they know they know they know you know they're the they're the elite universities in the world they understand that GPAs are so distorted depending upon which school you actually attended that they don't really do a good representation of like, what does a student actually know? Same thing though, too, with standardized tests like ACT and SAT, that has become less and less important. And what's more important is things like their entry essay, their face-to-face uh, uh, -face interview. Uh, those other things are important as far as just getting in the door, kind of like a job application where you fill out the job application or your resume. Right. It looks really, okay, this is a qualified applicant now let's bring them into the room and actually talk to them, maybe make them deliver a lesson, et cetera, as far as with t the teaching profession. Same thing yeah, with our sure. students. It takes longer to do that, but man, you actually then have a really good idea about what kind of quality of student you're getting as far as being able to enter the, the uh, at the university. But I think more and more universities are going to move away from that, which thank goodness, because then it allows us yeah. to take a step back away and go, they're not requiring this. Instead, what they're requiring is these things which really prove that they are that quality of a student that they can be entered, uh, considered to be a, a student at our university. Well, university admissions is complicated in and of itself. And I, I mean, university admissions shouldn't be based on past performance. It should be based on future potential. 
That's what you want to know. You want to know, especially for people who um, don't have the money to go to Harvard, for example, but should go to Harvard and would thrive in an environment like that, like that. if given if given the opportunity. But, you know, they go to an inner city high school and, and it's life is tough. Life is crappy. But, you know, we see that this kid has a ton of potential. And so moving towards a, a mastery system and a, an, a, an entrance system that is able to judge a student based on their their future gives that student um, who would be able to be grant given grants or awards or student aid so that they can get into Harvard, it gives them that opportunity and then they excel and they thrive. Um, you know, we're, you know, the two of us aren't going to solve the grading scale. No way. Uh, <laughs> problem. We're just, you know, two dudes talking into microphones a little bit. Um, but, you know, this is a complicated question. I think of course it's unfortunate that this woman was fired. I think that, you know, based on the circumstance and the rules, she probably, you know, they had a right to fire her. Uh, it's unfortunate that, you know, it didn't instead open up to an opportunity to have a, a much larger discussion and say, okay, we get what's going on here. Don't do it again. And let's promise to have a talk about this at a board level and see if we can, you know, uh, you know, have an, open dis- have an yeah. open discussion for a solution. Um, because obviously we we have a we don't have consensus here, um, you know. As far as grading scales go, I mean, I think that a lot of people agree that a mastery scale is is better in a lot of ways. Um, so hopefully we'll get schools switching to that. But this is a complicated subject and very complex. Um, I get the people who who say under no circumstances should a student get a zero. Uh, I just, I, I think that, uh, again, it's complicated. We could just go, <laughs> you could just go round and round. Yes. And, uh, and I don't think we have the time for that because we have to talk to Lisa Johnson. She's awesome. So, so when we come back, we're going to be joined on the podcast by Lisa, who just wrote a book that's amazing called Creatively Productive. So stay tuned. All right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We are thrilled to be joined by Lisa Johnson. Lisa is an educational technologist in Texas and the author of Creatively Productive, Essential Skills for Tackling Time Wasters, Clearing the Clutter, and Succeeding in School and Life, which sounds awesome, to be honest. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's start right at the start. What What does it mean to be creatively productive? I am so glad you asked. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, I I was thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, like everybody has 24 hours in the day. Everybody has 168 hours in the week. And when I was really kind of looking at my new sort of newsletter and rebranding it and, and recreating the new format, I was thinking about that very thing is like, if I wanted to encapsulate, like, what is creatively productive? Like, what does that actually mean? And so I really got to thinking about, I, I really feel like it's it's a mindset, it's a lifestyle, it's kind of a movement. And sometimes we're creative, sometimes we're productive. Sometimes we kind of find that sweet spot and we achieve what I, you know, kind of the book 
entails of that creatively productive. But I think the bigger picture is that we're happy, healthy, and achieving the heights we want to achieve both personally as well as professionally. So probably, probably my favorite thing about the book, I mean, Glenn will go on all day about free resources and like just giving things to teachers and giving them like all of the things that they need. And we love so like books that have resources and you have tons of them jammed into this. There's a lot um, here for people to take and to apply and to use um, in their lives kind of right away if they're reading this if there was one resource in the book that you would encourage people to start doing if they if they needed to say listen i need to get my act together i need to be more productive i need to be creatively productive let's let's do it what would that resource be where where would people start if they were using your book as a resource absolutely well first i wanted to thank you because i i did that was my my really intent was just to make sure that you know, it was as thorough as it possibly could, because even when I'm conducting sessions, I kind of feel like more is more, you know, within reason, obviously. Um, and when you're talking about topics like digital organization and time management and note taking and goal setting and reflection, there isn't a one size fits all approach, you know, to any of those things. It's a lot of trial and error. So that's really why I wanted to add a lot of different resources for each of those sections. Um, mm. And as you asked, uh, kind of looking at like, where would I start? I would always start with goal setting um, and and really not even the goal setting part. In chapter four, I get into kind of a values audit and looking at what your values are, because a lot of times people will set goals and they're not really in line with kind of who they are as a person and, and what their kind of core sort of, you know, beliefs are. And so I think a lot of times that's why people don't, you know, kind of finish those goals or meet their goals. Um, the new book I'm reading by Cal Newport, Digital Minimalism actually starts with looking at your values and setting goals for your device uses based on those values. So I think, I think kind of looking at your values and then setting goals and, and kind of having everything weave through that is, is where I would always start. It's funny. Glenn and I talk about this a lot too. There are a lot of things that you learn in teacher's college. I don't know. Do you guys call it teacher's college down there, by the way? We do not. Okay, I didn't think that. <laughs> so this is the, teacher's we would also college. call it your, prof- your professional year, but whatever, your bachelor of education. Sure. Um, <laughs> there's, there's also definitely a lot of things you don't learn. And there's a laundry list of those. So we don't need to get into them. But one of the things related to what you're talking about is I don't think you learn a lot about how stretched Thin you're going to be and how to manage that how to um handle all of the things that a teacher needs to do with their day um is something you don't learn in school uh and they also don't warn you that the more you try to innovate the more you try to differentiate and do all of this cool stuff that work glenn and i are always trying to get people to do that actually stretches you even thinner it's it's hard teaching is hard how important is it for educators to learn how to be master time managers? Um, I, I, I think it's very important for absolutely. Uh, and and I, I resonate with that. I think teachers burn out, 
you know, because they are trying to do too much or, or trying to kind of add in too many new things all at once. Like I'm, I'm absolutely for innovation and kind of, you know, changing things and, and making things, you know, work more efficiently or more effectively and things like that. But you do have to be mindful of, you know, the 24 hours you have in a day. So mm-hmm. I think part of it's a balance of just kind of knowing yourself and, and kind of how you work and, even within the day and, and know, you know, how quickly you'll get stressed out, things like that, knowing what works for you, knowing kind of where you want to go, where you want to take your students and kind of the best paths to get there and knowing how to handle the you know, distractions and the detours along the way. And it's, it's not an easy thing by any means. A lot of it's just no. kind of, it's self-awareness, a lot of it and self-management, not- obviously. And not to mention trying to balance your family life and your oh, personal God. life and your social life and, and, you know, recreation time. I mean, cause you need those things as a teacher as well. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that is, a, I mean, still, I mean, I've been kind of in the education field for over 17 years and it's, you know, as my, my own kids get older and things like that, and there's just different demands on your life. And so it really is. It's, I, I talk about it in the book too, of kind of like these, Look at the things that are going to work for whatever seasons of life that you're in, because what works now may not work, you know, six months, two years from now, because things come up. You know, you may have somebody who's sick in the family. You may have, um, you know, some something that's happened. Your husband may be looking right. for another job or, you know, you you might have something that comes up. And so you just have to be aware of those things and, and not, you know, not beat yourself up over it. So Lisa, in the book, it's not all just about teachers. It's actually emphasizes some things about students in it. One of the things that I noticed in there is you're emphasizing the importance of how, why our students should be taking good notes and why note taking is an essential skills, mm-hmm. essential skill. Sorry. Can you tell our listeners more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I start that chapter with a quote from a Harvick Harvard physics professor, Eric, I believe, Mazur. Um, and it's an excerpt from a book by Alexis Wiggins. And what happened is the, the quote itself is, you know, like you mentioned, you know, we don't need necessarily good note takers, but it's part of it, a larger quote that talks about we need students who can hold up ideas to the light and challenge and question tests and hypothesize about them. And I think that's the bigger thing. So sometimes when we talk about note taking, I think it gets kind of boiled down to basic regurgitation of what the teacher said. And I, I don't think that's really good note-taking. I think good note-taking yeah. is, you know, like processing things and analyzing things and organi- organizing them and synthesizing them and, and challenging that information. So note-taking is one medium that if we do well, it allows us to do all of those things. And I'll, I'll just speak from my own personal experience, but I feel like there's very few settings in my life that I don't take notes in, in some form or fashion, you know, you'll notes in meeting. I'll take notes when I'm reading, I'll take notes, you know, when I'm in a professional development or, or meeting with a teacher and they're all different styles of notes and, and very few of them are, are just regurgitating what somebody's saying. So I, I think that's more where I don't want to just say, Oh, we just, you know, we don't need good note takers. We do, but to really look at what note taking is. I love the folks that do sketch notes. I think that is a skill that I don't have that I would love to have. And I, I, when I see them doing it, I'm like, wow, you're blowing my mind right now with how cool that is. I I think, I think sketch noting and the, the people who are drawing, and and designing things on an iPad while they're sitting and listening to a set. 
that stuff just blows my mind and i don't know the i guess there's value to it like everyone's different right and i guess that's just a way that they find they retain things better is that is that kind of the the nature of that i mean i i would agree i think everybody you know, there's analog notes, there's digital notes, there's different processes of notes, you know, you've got Cornell, you've got outline, you've got sketch noting, you've got like the flow method, you've got all of these different, you know, mind mapping and, and things like that. And so I think it's, yeah. it's less about, you know, each, it's more about figuring out what works best for each individual person and how they process information. Yeah. And then also, you know, obviously certain things like maybe a TED talk or reading a book may lend themselves to one type of notes over another. But I think it's just finding what works for you, because really those notes are intended to be something that you're going to reflect back on and, and use as a resource. So if, if it makes sense to you and it's how your brain works, I don't think it matters which style you're using per se. So one of the things we know about our listeners, I think in particular, generally speaking, is that they're pretty productive people we we have a, a lot of um high achievers in our in our listenership in terms of what they're doing in education uh so what do you think creatively productive brings to those people the people who say you know i think i got it all pretty well handled right now i'm i'm doing okay with this um what what are you what can you do you think you can bring to them yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I would consider myself a fairly productive person, you know, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I, I never stop learning and there's always different things that, you know, I, I find to be helpful and, and how to handle, you know, the, the procrastination and the distractions and things of that nature, you know, obviously perfection is the enemy of done. So I'm certainly not advocating that, you know, you have to tweak everything that is already working for you. But I also yeah. think it's kind of like spring cleaning, you know, every year we accumulate certain things that, you know, may not work as well. And we kind of have to go back and, you know, tweak things here and there as I've been reading um, and kind of purge and, and regroup as well. I've been reading Cal Newport's book, um, Digital Minimalism, and he had 1500 people who were, you know, very productive type people, but they signed up for a month digital declutter. And the vast majority of them, you know, still had places that they could kind of trim the fat and, and be more mindful about their technology use and things like that. I think the other right. piece to this book is, Everything I include is really intended to be used with students as well, although obviously all of it could be used, you know, personally and professionally. And I think that's where I don't know that we talk enough with students about these sort of things because they are somewhat soft skills and, you know, digital organization and, you know, time management and things like that. And I think just having those conversations with them talking to them about what works for us, what may not work, and and just being more open about those topics, I think is really going to be more beneficial for our students. And so that's really where I get from it. I mean, if you are productive, hopefully you're you're talking to your students about what strategies you're using or or where you found those strategies and things like that. I, I think that's really important strategy to to build our students' um, self-management skills. So one of the most awesome parts of the book discusses why it's so important to read books that are outside of the quote-unquote edusphere. So I was going to ask, what books have you recently read or are you reading right now that you would recommend to our audience? Sure. And and I'll, I'll just kind of add a little caveat there. Ultimately, I think it's important just to not silo ourselves in, in one sort of, you know, genre ever, you know. And so I think- Great point. 
you know, reading outside, like I read YA, I read, you know, fiction, I read nonfiction, I'll read some books by educators, I'll read some that, you know, aren't by educators. So um, I, I keep mentioning Cal Newport's book, it's really, really good. Um, he's also he's the author of the book Deep Work. And so this is his I don't think it's a second book, I think he's written more, but it's it's really, really, really good. And it's tackling a lot of the issues that I think, you know, I, I know I personally face with kind of the way that social media has become so prevalent in our lives. And so I, I really appreciate his thoughtful sort of takes on those things. Um, a lot of books by Ryan Holiday are really good. He's written The Perennial Seller, and those are definitely not written for educators. But I mean, not that you couldn't read them, but there are some really interesting things because the idea is why does certain content last for generations and other content not? And so I think that's kind of the bigger takeaway from it is, is what makes things, you know, perennial and what makes things kind of fleeting and, and a trend. And then the last one I'll just mention is pretty much anything by Austin Cleon. He's absolutely fantastic. He lives here in Austin, Texas, and he's the one who does a lot of the um, New, York, New York Times blackout poetry, but he's written three books and, and a journal. His third book actually comes out, I think, next month. It's called Keep Going, 10 Ways to Stay Creative in Good Times and Bad. And and every time I read one of his books, I, I get a lot out of it. So I, I really appreciate kind of the way that he structures information. And, you know, there's just so much you can kind of glean from it. Uh, Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. How can people connect with you? Where Where can they reach out with you? uh on on the internet on your website like give us give us your contact information yeah absolutely so if you go to www.tech t-c-h chef c-h-e-f and then number four letter u.com you'll get my blog resources um there's a link to both of the books that i've written as well as blog posts about those you can actually download the first chapter and the introduction of creatively productive and kind of glean all of those information on Pinterest and Twitter and Facebook. I'm Tech Chef for You as well. On Instagram, I'm Note Chef for You. It's in Note and then C-H-E-F and then number four, letter U. And that's really because I share my reader's notebook there. I share, you know, books that I'm reading. I share things of that nature, planners and, and bullet journaling. And so I didn't want to share that on all of the other channels because I feel like it's it's a little bit of... A very different sort of thing that I'm doing. And so I didn't want to clutter those with that. So people who really just want to interested in those, they can follow the Instagram account. Nice. And we're going to have a link to buy the book in the show notes, folks, if you're looking to pick up Creatively Productive. Thanks for joining us, uh, Lisa. This has been awesome. Thank you, Glenn and Mike, both of you. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed kind of listening to your podcast and I was thrilled and honored to be able to be a guest. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is Mike Washburn. My co-host is Glenn Irvin. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. Glenn is at Irv Spanish on Twitter. I can be found on Twitter at Mr. Washburn. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, We'd love if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast or Google Play Store. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost and this helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Schoology, for supporting us. Check out Schoology.com to learn how they can help you advance what's possible. Thanks as always for listening. 
stay awesome, and we'll see you soon.